Old horrors never die. They just fade away. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for veterans. Mad-Eye, said Mr. Weasley, dead. Bill walked over to the sideboard and pulled out a bottle of fire whiskey and some glasses. Here, he said, and with a wave of his wand, he sent twelve full glasses soaring through the room to each of them, holding the thirteenth aloft. Mad-Eye! Mad-Eye, they all said, and drank. Mad-Eye! echoed Hagrid, a little late, with a hiccup. I'm Heather Price-Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And we're back with two more chapters from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. We are moving through this plot at quite a clip, although this is a very long book, so we are not, in fact, moving through at much of a clip because it is still very early. The chapters this week are Fallen Warrior and the Ghoul in Pajamas. On this podcast, you will hear spoilers and cursing, same as always, and some adult themes. This week's adult themes are urgent care, survivor's guilt, identity fraud, banned books, and in-laws. Alex Dallenberg. (laughs) What happened this week? First, happy birthday, Heather. Oh, thank you. Happy almost birthday, Alex. I know. Our birthdays are six days apart. So we cute. I know. That's super nice. We stan a Virgo couple. We don't stan ourselves. Hopefully, (laughs) I don't know. That'd be really narcissistic. No. Is that a Virgo characteristic? I have no idea. Self standing? No, that's more of a Leo. Okay. I don't know shit about this. All I know is that I'm a classic Virgo. (laughs) And I don't know. You, it surprises me that that's your sign. Or astrology is meaningless. I don't know. I don't know. If astrology is meaningless, all kinds of other things are meaningless, too. If it's personally meaningful, then it's meaningful. I don't think astrology is any dumber than lots and lots of other belief systems, frankly. Like making a Harry Potter podcast. Yeah. Certainly astrology is not dumber than reading the world through Harry Potter. (laughs) So no shade at all. Also, I do highly identify with the characteristics of a Virgo, and I think... Y'all who know astrology well would probably agree that there are some truly classic Virgo tendencies in HP dubs. Anyway, moving along, in this week's chapters, Hedwig is still dead. Oh, uh, <laughs> actually, in this week's chapters, we find out that Hedwig miraculously survived and flew off to wait out the Wizarding War someplace nice on a beautiful farm where she can roam free mm-hmm. fly free Hedwig. <laughs> she fly. went to a farm upstate yep she went to a farm do oh. you know my parents told me that for real once really yeah that my dog sage had gone but did, it didn't make sense because i lived in like incredibly rural northern arizona so you basically lived on a farm i lived there were sheep everywhere. <laughs> there was nowhere more open spaces for a dog to run than where that dog already lived. It didn't, Just in hindsight. Even bigger farm. <laughs> I mean, the whole. You didn't whole, grow up on a farm, but. I didn't grow up on a farm, you were but farm I grew adjacent. up. I grew up like in an arroyo, <laughs> like literally on the edge of a fucking canyon where our dogs spent all their time frolicking. So there was not a place where there would have been more open space. Honestly, a farm would have been more constricting for the dogs than where we lived. Sage. 
yeah r.i.p sage when did you find out the truth i don't even know i maybe i like semi believed them i don't really remember well anyway hedwig has gone to live on a farm we choose to believe she's fine meanwhile harry pulls himself from the wreckage of the motorcycle crash he is patched up by ted and andromeda tonks who Ted fucking, like, grows back his tooth and fixes his broken ribs, and they tend to Hagrid, too. Uh, Ted is described as a fair-haired, big-bellied man, so more like Ted Chonks, am I right? Oh my god. Tonks is a chonk. That's Um, rude. Don't fat-shame Ted Tonks. I'm not Everyone loves chonks on the internet right now. That's true. Chonky animals. Well, he's a man. I have a whole theory about the love of chonky animals. It's because we're subsuming our ability to love chonky people. Yeah, as we're channeling it all into chonky animals. As we perpetuate hatred of fat human bodies. Right. Yeah, so agreed. So that's, that's my very hot take. Um, I still haven't written the Medium post on that yet, so. <laughs> but I could. I should probably, anyway, freelance writers out there, feel free to uh, take that. Um, really? You're just giving away your hot take? I, why not? I give away this podcast. That's true. <laughs> uh, on the second page of these chapters, <laughs> <laughs> we learn that Lovo was held off by a protective barrier. The protective spells worked. That's great. Ted and Andromeda are very concerned about Nymphadora Tonks, also known as Tonks. They call her Dora. So Dora the Auror. <laughs> and then when she retires, she's Dora the ex I guess. <laughs> oh, that's very good. That surprised me. Topical, too, because there's a movie. Hagrid is also pretty banged up. He asks Harry where Hedwig is. Harry tells him that Hedwig has gone to live in a farm upstate. Hedwig and Harry take a portkey back. Hedwig, Sorry. Damn it. I'm still in denial. <laughs> Hagrid and Harry take a portkey back to the burrow. They've beaten everyone else there, which is alarming. Hagrid immediately starts to get drunk on brandy. Eventually, Lupin and George materialize. George is bleeding very badly. He got cursed during the scuffle, and we learn that he has lost an ear, uh, which can't be grown back because it's cursed damage. So that is the worst thing that happens to the Weasleys in this book. Oh, wait. Also, it got sectum sempred. Yeah, by Snape. Snape fucked him up real good. That is good. dark. That's really dark. Do you think Snape was doing that because, I guess, it was partly to keep his cover, but also was he like, I fucking hate the Weasley twins? Well, I mean, he did use something non-deadly. Yeah. I mean, I mean deadly sectum sempra can ish. kill you. Yeah, blood loss, but he man. Didn't, it's a thing. I mean, he didn't Nevada Kedavra, George Weasley. That's true. He just cut his ear off, which, all things considered, is actually one of the least bad things that happens to the Weasley family. Dude, Draco's lucky he doesn't lose a fucking appendage when Harry sectum sempras him. Yeah, I mean... that's a thing that can happen. Wait, if it can't be repaired because it's curse damaged, how did they fix Draco. Maybe it's just amputations that can't be grown back. I don't know. I have a lot of questions. Also, Snape is a super good magician. Wizard, not magician. (laughs) Magician. He's not a magician. (laughs) 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 I do know that what these books are about. Uh, You know, (laughs) Snape's just doing tricks. Um, Moving on. 
Lupin seizes Harry and interrogates him. He says, what creature sat in the corner the first time that Harry Potter visited my office at Hogwarts? Answer me. Harry says, dude, I'm actually really bad at Harry Potter trivia. <laughs> uh, surprisingly. No, he says, it's a Grindelow. It was a Grindelow. Lupin says he had to see if Harry was an imposter because it's obvious that they were betrayed by someone within the Order who knew about their plans. And that's why they were ambushed by hella Death Eaters. Uh, Lupin also berates Harry for using Expelliarmus against Stan Shunpike, thus giving away his identity. The Death Eaters have come to believe that Expelliarmus is Harry's signature move, and it tipped them off because in a moment of life or death peril, he used Expelliarmus instead of something more serious. But Harry says Stan wasn't in his right mind, and he didn't want to kill him by stunning him off of his broom, because then he would have fallen to his death. He says, Voldemort's the one who blasts people out of their way, no matter what. That's not what we're gonna do. So, Harry Potter has got some fucking principles. Although Lupin's totally right that Expelliarmus is a sort of hilariously weak sauce spell to use during this particular battle. Harry does say, Harry's like, dude, this has super worked for me before. Why wouldn't I go back? <laughs> He's like, I literally fought off Voldemort with this. Why wouldn't I go back to it again and again? Also, kind of the only spell I know I don't really study. <laughs> <laughs> can you send Patronuses after people? Like, I don't. Can Patronus? They can clearly, they're like mess. They can do like, they can deliver mail but or whatever. But they can't do like physical know. harm. They can give like, they can send like, you can send voicemails via Patronus. <laughs> but I don't think, I don't know. I, I don't think you can have your Patronus attack someone, but someone with more knowledge. Just an idea. More magical knowledge. I mean, I'm us, sure you can. Fill in. Fill us in, I'm sure. Just, wouldn't that be badass? If you sent a deer to attack someone. Yeah. Or a beaver or whatever your fucking Patronus <laughs> is. Beaver. <laughs> a beaver Patronus would be lit, I think. <laughs> would That'd it? Be, maybe not lit. I don't know why I said lit. <laughs> maybe because they glow. Um, oh, God. What would your Patronus be? Have we discussed this? We probably discussed this. I don't We're know. 81 episodes in. I can't keep track of what all we've talked about. I don't know what my Patronus would be. Some kind of bird. Oh, that's nice. I think. What about yours? Hmm. A beaver, maybe. Maybe a beaver. <laughs> maybe a sun bear. Or a badger. Or a ba Ooh, a badger. That's very Hufflepuff, though. That's too basic. I don't know. I'll have to think more about this. So... Is saying beaver over and over too funny? There's a real place in Arizona called Wet Beaver Creek. <laughs> and there's a Dry Beaver Creek. Oh no, even worse. Yeah, I've actually camped out at Wet Beaver Creek. <laughs> yeah, you have. I have, and it was a very, it literally was a very moist night. It was extremely hot and humid. I can't believe you just said moist and Wet Beaver Creek in the same sentence. It's a sentence. place, and you can go cliff diving at Wet Beaver Creek. We did not. We ended up hiking somewhere else, but anyway. It's fine to say the word beaver. No, I know. It's just <laughs> funny. <laughs> What came to my mind? It's because I think I just saw one on Instagram. Again, a literal animal. Yes, I follow like every zoo on Instagram, and uh, there was some fucking baby beaver. We need to get just, through this goddamn summary. <laughs> Sorry. It's because these books get so depressing. I know, we need to keep I have it to light. Keep, so, yeah, like, I could either be talking about fucking beavers on Instagram or how George Weasley is like bleeding out on a bed at the burrow. There. So yeah, George is bleeding out. He's lost an ear. It's kind of ironic that he lost an ear, given 
that they invented extendable ears, so I don't know if that's intentional on JK's part. Maybe it is. He's got a pretty good sense of humor about it. He's making jokes with Fred about being, he says he feels like a saint because he feels holy, get it? Because he has a hole in his head. Later on, Tonks and Ron land via broom. Lupin gets up in Tonks' face and asks what kept them. It turns out that Bellatrix went after them hard. Tonks says it seems like Bellatrix wanted to kill her almost as much as she wanted to get to Harry. Anyway, they missed their port key. Bill and Fleur return next via Thestral. Bill tells everyone that but 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 motherfucking Mad Eye Moody is dead. So yeesh. Yeah. During the ambush, Lord Voldemort went after Mad Eye first. Mundungus panicked and disapparated, and Lovo cursed Mad Eye right in the face. Damn. Him, presumably with the killing curse. Bill grabs a bottle of fire whiskey and passes out glasses to everyone. Everybody takes a shot and toasts Mad Eye. The order speculates on who could have betrayed them. Everybody sort of suspects Mundungus at first. Bill says it couldn't have been him because the Seven Potters idea was Mundungus's and the Death Eaters seemed super confused by that. Fleur suggests somebody gave it away by mistake, heavily implying Hagrid because, you know, that's kind of Hagrid's M.O. Harry implores everyone to trust each other. Lupin gives Harry a pitying look and says he's being like James who would have thought it the height of dishonor to mistrust his friends, even though James obviously was betrayed to his death by someone who was his friend, Peter Pettigrew. Harry wants to help fetch Mad-Eye's body. Everyone else is like, fuck no, dude. We already got you this far. You're not going outside again. Hagrid boasts about Harry fighting off Lovo again. Harry says he had no idea what he was doing at the time. It was totally involuntary. He's never fired off a spell like that before. Uh, with the gold sparks and everything coming out of his wand. So there's some more wand metaphysics mystery there. Harry goes outside to get some air. His scar is really hurting. It burns and he gets a vision of Lord Voldemort interrogating bu -bu -bu motherfucking Ollivander from the wand shop about why he was yet again unable to kill Harry Potter uh, Lovo says that Ollivander lied to him that switching out his wand for another wand would make all his problems go away, and, uh, he's torturing Ollivander. So, Ollivander says he had no idea why Voldemort wasn't able to kill Harry with a new wand, so. Ron and Hermione eventually find Harry outside. Harry tells them what happens. Hermione says, please, you need to close the link between you and Voldemort. You need to keep it closed. She's very alarmed that Harry, once again, seems to be getting glimpses into Voldemort's mind, which, although very helpful for exposition purposes, very dangerous if your name is Harry Potter. So despite the fact that everybody got their shit wrecked, wedding prep continues apace at the burrow. Uh, probably a useful distraction, honestly. Yeah. Um, you know. At some point... Molly interrogates Harry about why he's planning to drop out of Hogwarts because, you know, she's caught wind of the fact that he, Ron, and Hermione are going to go off and do some, go on some kind of quest. It sounds very, very dangerous. Uh, Harry says, look, Dumbledore wants me to do something. He doesn't want anybody else to know what it is, but I got to go do it. Molly says he might have misunderstood Dumbledore. 
and that if Dumbledore wanted something done, he had the whole order at his command. Uh, but eventually, Molly lets it drop, unable to get any information out of Harry. But she does set Ron, Hermione, and him to doing all kinds of tasks separately to keep them apart from each other because she doesn't want them scheming. There is no news in the Daily Prophet that Mad-Eye was killed or any news about the attack in general. It seems like Scrimgeour probably doesn't want people to know how much power Lovo has amassed or that there was a mass breakout from Azkaban. Eventually, Ron, Hermione, and Harry steal some time alone in Ron's bedroom. Mad-Eye's body still hasn't been found, and Harry muses grimly about how the Death Eaters might have disposed of it, causing Hermione to burst into tears. Ron then comforts Hermione by cleaning some grease off of a handkerchief and giving it to her, and gives Harry kind of a dirty look, and Harry's like, oh, all of a sudden, you're Mr. Tact? Yeah, Ron is like, a trash boy. what the fuck? <laughs> Good job doing the bare minimum, Ron. So Ron, like, pats Hermione on the back and gets, like, a bunch of fucking gold stars for it. Hermione is sorting out books to take on their big Horcrux adventure. Harry makes one final attempt to talk his two friends out of accompanying him on this suicide mission, but they both, of course, adamantly say, we're coming with you. Hermione even tells Harry that she's modified her parents' memory to make them think that they are a childless couple who want to move to Australia, so they no longer have any memory of their daughter. Eventually, she says if she survives, she'll lift the charm, but it's for their own protection because she's told them a lot about Harry and she doesn't want Lovo going after them. Ron similarly has disguised the ghoul that lives in their attic as himself, and he's gonna have the ghoul live in his bedroom while they're away, so, and tell everyone that the reason he's not at school is because he has a bad case of spattergroit. Which it seems like is just pustules. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. Yeah, it's pretty foul. It's a nasty description, but I mean, so anyway, Ron has like dressed up this ghoul in his own pajamas, which is why the chapter is called The Ghoul in Pajamas, and uh, that's their plan. It's very like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> Something like that, you know. Ron um, Weasley's day off. Ron Weasley's day off, yeah. More like his year off. <laughs> Ron Weasley takes a gap year. <laughs> what is this if not the world's worst gap year that uh, the yeah. trio are taking? Instead of backpacking through Europe. Well, they're, they are kind of backpacking through Europe, actually. Yeah, I guess. Depends on your definition of Europe post-Brexit, but... This is pre-Brexit. This is pre-Brexit. They're still very much in Europe. <laughs> The trio discuss Harry's plans to visit Godric's Hollow first. Harry says he has no idea where to start looking for Horcruxes, but he feels drawn to Godric's Hollow. Ron asks if the mysterious person known as R.A.B. managed to destroy the Horcrux, and if so, how they did it. Hermione says she's been researching that, of course. In order to do that, she summoned a bunch of Horcrux books from the window of Dumbledore's office after his funeral. She just said, like, Osseo Horcrux books, and they flew out of his window toward her. So now she has, like, this super rare knowledge of Horcrux creation and destruction. So we learn a lot more about the metaphysics of Horcruxes. They are the opposite of human beings, where whatever happens to the body... The soul remains untouched. Hermione says, so Ron, if I like ran you through with a sword or whatever, 
uh, your soul would remain intact. But with the Horcrux, the soul depends on its enchanted container for survival. It can't exist without it. Although it can sort of like flit in and out and around it, which is how the Horcrux diary possessed Ginny. Harry thinks to himself that he should have asked Dumbledore how he destroyed the ring. Good fucking point. Dumbledore maybe should have like dropped that knowledge. Pretty, but whatever. I mean, it's both their bad, frankly. Molly eventually breaks up this meeting. She's super fucking pissed and sets them to work sorting wedding presents. At one point, she has them, like, put sheets on a bed, which doesn't seem like it would keep them occupied very long. Also, it seems like something she could easily do with magic. Well, I mean, that's not the point. The point is to keep them busy, but True. I don't know. I guess she could have had them fold fitted sheets, which is, like, <laughs> impossible. impossible. Even by magic. Even magic cannot fold a fitted sheet. <laughs> Harry and Ron joke to themselves that it'll be way more fun searching for horcruxes than doing all this wedding prep, so <laughs> we're guys. Um, <laughs> the Delacour parents arrive, and they're nice, so that's cool. Monsieur Delacour is extremely plump, so pretty good. I've, there was, we've had two nice fat people in uh, these chapters. That's they're not villains, true. so there you go. Yeah. Ted Chonks and Mr. Delachonk. Jesus. The word chonk is hilarious. I suppose. I'm a chonk. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Also, Arthur clearly thinks Madame Delacour is hot as hell. I mean, she's a Vila. Well, she probably, yeah, she certainly is. Or she's like half Vila. Wasn't, I, her, wasn't Fleur's grandmother a Vila? Something like that, yeah. There's you guys Vila. are going to correct us inevitably, so there's Vila blood in there. Yeah. Well, they looked this up on Ancestry.com or whatever. Do to do there's more wedding prep. Uh, Molly asks Harry at some point how he wants to celebrate his birthday. He's like, ah, no fuss. Like, dinner is cool. And then Harry feels a crushing wave of guilt about the trouble he's causing her. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. So we should start in the obvious place with the highest moment of drama in these chapters which is that Mad-Eye Moody has departed this world He's I don't know flipped his mortal coil yes flipped it loose shuffled shuffled off, off his mortal he's flipped his mortal coil <laughs> what? shuffled off his mortal coil I I don't know I messed that up we're feeling loopy today yeah that's okay I mean hopefully y'all are into it I don't know <laughs> So Mad-Eye's death is a hard one because, I mean, obviously it's sad, but also it's kind of hard to feel that much emotion about Mad-Eye because we primarily know him through his horrible, evil imposter, and we don't actually get much of a portrait of Mad-Eye the real person. So I, I mean, I'm sure folks disagree with this, but this one is much less affecting to me than a lot of the other deaths in this book. It's a good plot point and it makes a good sort of like, it sort of double reinforces the idea we talked about last time where she's like, fucking anyone's up for grabs. But I don't know, it's not that sad to me. Yeah, I mean, if you think back on, if you're trying to think back on all your favorite Mad-Eye moments, what are they? Like when With he the, turns which is the actual Draco yeah. into a ferret. It's like, remember ferret. when Draco got turned into a ferret? That was sick. Oh, wait. Yeah, remember when he showed them all the unforgivable curses and he fucking hangs out with Neville and all this shit that is not 
actually mad dramatically, at him. Remember when he dramatically walked into the Hogwarts dinner? That was dope. Oh, fuck. Yeah. None of uh, that was None him. of that was Mad-Eye Moody. Basically, we have two scenes of the real Mad-Eye hanging out in a fucking kitchen with Harry Potter. You Being know? gruff. Yeah. I guess... He showed in the photo of the the original order photo. Yeah, that and that's like a, a really Mad-Eye. fucked up scene. I know, but that's like the vintage Mad Eye to yeah. be like. Well, to be fair, kind of simultaneously caring and disturbing at the same time. As we talked about, Barty Crouch is the greatest method actor in time and space. He's the best. He's the best Death Eater. If he had survived, Voldemort clearly would have won the Wizarding War. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Barty Crouch really did his duty for the the dark side. So, I mean, you know, R.I.P. Mad-Eye Moody. It's good to kill off the real badass, yeah, I guess. Yeah, and yeah, you get that sense that Voldemort so respected his prowess that he went after Mad-Eye first because he had just assumed that's who Harry Potter would be with. But ultimately... This is the moment at which Mad-Eye kind of outlives his narrative use. Like, right. what else is Mad-Eye going to do in these books? Yeah, it doesn't, he could have shown up at the Battle of Hogwarts, but you kind of do have to kill him off if he is supposedly that badass, because you have to remove any possible escape hatch for Harry Potter. Yeah, and also, I don't know, he's an obvious death here. Mm-hmm. He's well-liked, but not particularly emotionally resonant, and he's old. It's a nice, maybe not a nice, nothing in these books is nice. It's fitting because it mirrors book five where he's very paranoid and he says, okay, no breaking ranks if any of us get killed. And And they don't. Like you're going fucking very extra mad eye. And yeah, nobody dies. And then this one. He fucking dies, so... But they don't break ranks. Right. They actually do exactly what Mad-Eye would have wanted them to do, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that he, you know, he dies a hero. Yeah. And... It's probably how he would have wanted to go. I think they expected to go. Well, it's also, I mean, Voldemort himself kills Mad-Eye, which is pretty badass. He doesn't get killed by, like, some, some Rosencrantz and Guildenstern bullshit like Death Eaters. Imperious Stan Shunpike, like, exactly. hits him with a, yeah, curse. He... He gets killed by the one and only Lovo, uh, which I'm sure would be a point of pride for him. So, yeah, he went out like a fucking champ. I hope he gets a posthumous Order of Merlin. Probably I bet he, he does. does. Yeah. Yeah, that Lifetime makes sense to me. Achievement Award. There's this, like, really bizarre kind of extra moment where Harry is imagining his crumpled dead body with the eyeball still whizzing around, which is truly a great image. Um, and probably accurate, honestly. And you don't really want to think about what kind of fucking desecration that corpse ends up suffering. But, yeah. you know. Does the eyeball ever show up again? I don't think so. Bummer. Yeah. That's one of my favorite magical objects. It's a great objects. magical object. It's true. It, <laughs> Maybe in that's the why Harry wants to go retrieve the corpse. He's just like, give me like, that Dude, goddamn eye. We need the magic eye. That shit can see through I don't think Deathly you can Hallows. use it without it being, like, in your head, though. Take out your own fucking eye. Yeah, you honestly. You can put it back. You're a wizard. Totally worth taking you know? out your own eyeball for. Yeah, just that's a fucking cybernetic upgrade. Totally. Mad-Eye Moody is the best, one of the best characters, even though we've said he's not the best character. Well, whatever. For various complicated reasons, he's, like, the best and the worst, but our only cyborg character, which just <laughs> makes him fucking awesome. Yeah, he is sort of the best and the worst, but I have to say my emotional reaction to this death is very muted. Yes. 
Um, also because we just lost Hedwig, which is, I'm sorry, way sadder. Yeah, you just... <laughs> you just can't really Dropped top her that. whole emotional payload in the previous chapter, and now we're just like, oh, okay, fine. Uh. It's also a good opportunity for Harry to really fully kind of metabolize the danger that his presence puts people in, mm-hmm. which um, is a useful plot device. So, you know, the, wow, if Mad-Eye can die, then anyone can die message is aptly received i suppose yeah narratively i think it would have been cheap to have them all escape this oh yeah obviously one of them had to die mm-hmm. and yeah i think Mana makes sense so you know r.i.p there he goes i want to talk a little bit there's a few characters in these chapters that get complicated in a way that's kind of interesting and sort of underscore a thing that jk is doing really well i think in this book is really letting you in on how much trauma and fear kind of warps people's personalities or makes them kind of hard to be around and makes it really hard to maintain community even as people try really hard to be there for each other. So one of those people is Lupin. I mean, if somebody made a mistake, Harry went on, and let something slip, I know they didn't mean to do it. It's not their fault, he repeated. Again, a little louder than he would usually have spoken. We've got to trust each other. I trust all of you. I don't think anyone in this room would ever sell me to Voldemort. More silence followed his words. They were all looking at him. Harry felt a little hot again and drank some more fire whiskey for something to do. As he drank, he thought of Mad-Eye. Mad-Eye had always been scathing about Dumbledore's willingness to trust people. Well said, Harry, said Fred unexpectedly. Yeah, ear, ear, said George, with a half-glance at Fred, the corner of whose mouth twitched. Lupin was wearing an odd expression as he looked at Harry. It was close to pitying. You think I'm a fool? demanded Harry. No, I think you're like James, said Lupin, who would have regarded it as the height of dishonor to mistrust his friends. I really dislike Book 7 Lupin in a lot of places. Yeah, he's not coping super well. Although, to be fair, he's got a lot to cope with. He's had a rough couple years. He's had to go undercover with the werewolves. But when he snaps at Tonks when she gets back, A, this adds to my suspicions that Lupin cares about Tonks. Does Lupin really love Tonks? Did he really want to marry her? I don't think Your wife gets back from a life or death mission and the first thing you do is like yell at her i mean what? people have really I know. complicated he's under, he's under intense amounts of stress responses to stress and grief i just think a lot of the things that make lupin one of the best characters in the previous several books kind of evaporate in this book in a way that it's sort of understandable for the character arc but it is not that pleasant to experience he sort of loses some of that really deep well of empathy and kind of unadulterated goodness that Harry really comes to rely on in sort of like a father figure way. Yeah. And I do think a lot of it is that he's in a kind of toxic marriage. I mean, it, Tonks is not a toxic person. Tonks is she's lovely. Great. Yeah, she's amazing. But he definitely, you get the sense, I just get the sense in that moment that he felt very forced into it. Yeah, they don't. This is probably going to upset some folks who really like this pairing. I don't think they seem happy. I mean, she's no ha- one... I think she seems happy. She's very pleased to see Remus. 
yeah, she loves him, but I don't. I, it doesn't seem like a like a romantic match to me. And I know we not for Remus. Definitely for Tonks. You think it's a romantic match for Tonks? She was mooning over Mooney in. Uh, That's true. In in all most of books. Yeah, six. you're right. You're right. Tonks Tonks is truly in love, which is even sadder because it is sad. I do think Lupin feels really pressured into romantic love where he doesn't actually feel it, and I do think he loves Tonks. I think he. Mm-hmm. Oh I yeah. I think they have a very close friendship, but I think he's in this really unpleasant situation of having to. Spend a fair amount of emotional energy faking romantic attachment to somebody when he doesn't feel it. And that's just like not something he needs to deal with on top of all his other trauma. So I mean, and she does, it doesn't seem to be as much of a comfort to him as you'd hope. It seems to be an extra source of sort of like emotional pressure. Well, I mean, you know, he's there's a lot of complicated things he's dealing with because he probably is thinking, am I going to get this woman killed? I'm a fucking werewolf. We're engaged in this brutal civil war. He thinks he's a liability to the people around him, you know, so he has a lot of self-loathing. And he and Harry have that in common mm-hmm. in a way that I think the mirroring there is really strong. And I think, you know, people, like I said, people react really differently to these kinds of stress. And some people are like, I want to shed attachments more than I want to deepen them. And I think Lupin is having a lot of tension around whether he wants to stay really attached to the people around him or whether he wants to kind of pull a Harry and run away. And then another thing is, I mean, maybe we're being too harsh on Lupin by saying he doesn't love Tonks. I think think he does love Tonks. I don't think he romantic loves Tonks. Well, I mean, maybe he does, but the other thing you need, the other thing that's important to, like, remember about Lupin is he feels deeply unworthy of love. Yeah, that's true. So I think he's reacting to Tonks' love in a complicated way. And it's making him... Because he doesn't feel like he deserves it. But it's making him kind of a toxic partner, which, like, can happen to people who have that kind of sort of self-loathing stuff. Yeah. He's pretty, there's a lot in Lupin that's very wounded. I remain a full lover of Remus Lupin. I just think he's really hard to deal with in these books in a way that feels very yeah. true. He's also, you know, he's all, he's still grieving Sirius after getting his best, one of his best friends back and then losing him, the same as Harry. And he's having to cope with the fact that Harry might, die yeah i wish lupin could actually like reach out to harry more but both of them are trying really hard to shed feelings of attachment right for reasonable purposes but i don't know lupin's just hard and the other person i wanted to talk about being kind of challenging is mrs weasley dumbledore didn't want anyone else to know mrs weasley i'm sorry Ron and Hermione don't have to come. It's their choice. I don't see that you have to go either, she snapped, dropping all pretense now. You're barely of age, any of you. It's utter nonsense. If Dumbledore needed work doing, he had the whole order at his command. Harry, you must have misunderstood him. Probably he was telling you something he wanted done, and you took it to mean that he wanted you. I didn't misunderstand, said Harry flatly. It's got to be me. He handed her back the single sock he was supposed to be identifying, which was patterned with golden bulrushes. And that's not mine. I don't support Puddlemere United. Oh, of course not, said Mrs. Weasley, with a sudden and rather unnerving return to her casual tone. 
I should have realized. Well, Harry, while we've still got you here, you won't mind helping with the preparations for Bill and Fleur's wedding, will you? There's still so much to do. Her reactions are really rational, like kind of the most rational, but she's frustrating, I find, in these chapters. But, I mean, that's, again, really, really unfair. And that's the thing that's so hard about, like, essentially a war novel is that nobody reacts perfectly to this kind of despair and strain and trauma. Yeah. So all these characters that we love deeply sort of aren't really on their best behavior. Yeah, I think Molly is reacting maybe the most normally. She doesn't want three teenagers to go fight the most dangerous entity on earth you know she doesn't want like it's kind of amazing how much molly has played ball so far you know she's like a real i don't know why would you say wizard patriot patriot seems like not the right word but she's a true believer in the order's mission she's put her family on the line and so she's trying to navigate in ways that are like really selfless and commendable I think she's trying to navigate how much she can protect her family while, like, knowing she's made this commitment. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. And I think it's really unfair how frustrating I find her. Um, And I think it probably says more about me than about this character. And I don't really know what that is, but there's probably some exploring to do about my reactions to Molly. But it just feels so obvious that... I mean, she's sort of the only person that treats Harry like a normal teen, which is beautiful in a way, but also just deeply inaccurate. And sort of, you kind of, you want her to continue to love him like he's just a member of her family and just a kid. But you also kind of want to be like, Molly, you got to get a grip. Like there's no sort of going back here. Yeah. I'm like, Dumbledore, Molly doesn't want Harry to die. I mean, Dumbledore doesn't want Harry to die either, you know, but... uh, Dumbledore kind of wants Harry to die. But, you know, (laughs) we'll we'll discuss that. Complicated. Yeah. Um, And none of them want Harry to die, but... I know, but Molly is the one... Molly's the character who's most concerned about Harry not dying, in a way. Like, Molly, like, actually wants to, like, take steps, like, proactive steps to, like, keep Harry from getting killed. Other people are like, well, you're Harry Potter, so you gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. But, which is kind of true. Yeah, I know. It's true. So, I think Molly, you're right, has the most sort of, like, personally rational reaction to the situation. Yeah. But, and you're right, is a true, like, a fully-fledged member of this movement, and is a true leader of this movement in, like, really important ways, and is sort of the maintainer of the home front in a way that's profoundly valuable to any movement. But... Just some of her actions in this, I don't know, she's just, her desire to maintain normalcy is really admirable and really annoying to yeah. me. And I, I don't know why I find it so annoying. I think, but like, more, I think it's more tragic. And I think that's why she drops it, right? She knows she's fighting a losing battle here trying to keep Harry Potter at home. But she also makes it really hard for Harry Potter to be prepared for what he has to do and... I don't know. It's kind of frustrating. Like, all, giving them all these wedding tasks is annoying. Like, I guess I feel... I, it makes me feel empathy for Harry, Ron, and Hermione, who are like, 
we get what you're doing, but like this is so frustrating because we actually do have to be able to plan. Right. Like this is a real need and all of your reactions are understandable, but they are keeping us from keeping ourselves safe in some ways because she's in total denial about the reality of, I don't know, she's not in denial. Whatever. This has more to do with me. Like I said, I think this has a lot to do with me. Yeah. But Molly Weasley as longtime listeners will know, has always been a really challenging character for me. And I don't really know what that's about. I think, I just think my instincts, I don't know. Molly's capacity for love is really impressive. Oh, yeah. and It'd be so easy for her to resent Harry. Totally, for putting her own children. And she doesn't. No, she loves him like her kid. Yeah, that's amazing. The Weasleys all do. I mean, the Weasleys have totally embraced and subsumed Harry into their family life in a way that's incredibly admirable. And you're right. I mean, Molly is the most loving character in some ways. I don't know why she frustrates me so much. I think, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of... I Seeing things completely from Harry's perspective, yeah, right now, Molly, definitely more of a hindrance than a help. But Molly's got some legit points. Molly's got, Harry, like, exclusively legit Harry does legit sometimes uh, interpret vague statements from Dumbledore and others as a mandate to do whatever the hell he wants. Why should he be the only person fighting this war? You know, there's it's everybody's job. Molly's more, a, like, a community-minded thinker. That's true. That's you know? true. And Harry is very she's like, this is a, cause she's, lone wolf. She's lived on Earth longer than Harry. Like, she's a mom. She's a, she's a parent. She, uh, she, you know, she's got a lot of wisdom that Harry doesn't have, frankly. I totally agree with that, but she's also, she's wrong about Harry. Yeah, I know. Not needing to be the one to take, like, to carry out this mission. Globally, Molly is wrong, but I understand why she's wrong. I don't, yeah, I mean, I guess she's not wrong. She's sort of, like, technically incorrect. Yeah. She's not wrong-headed at all, but her sort of... Her obsession with normalcy is understandable and for some reason really hard for me. Yeah. Maybe I'm someone who's really prone to like despair and Molly is pretty interested in keeping people's sort of like spirits up and in maintaining normalcy. So I mean, it's her first, her eldest kid's getting married this week. Yeah, like, it's she important. She wants to have that. That makes sense. Right. No, totally. I actually think I want to talk about the wedding just a tiny bit. Yeah. Because it's interesting that it is sort of the singular obsession of this chapter in some ways. Because it's sort of dumb, but it's also super not dumb. I mean, maintaining joy and tradition and ritual is really it's really important in times of crisis. Yeah, I mean, they had weddings at, like, they had weddings in, like, concentration camps. We've had yeah. weddings, we have done weddings in every situate, like, every possible scenario. There have been right. weddings and celebrations. And it's lovely to celebrate love, but some of the ways in which, like, she's very, like, wedding industrial complexing, like, maintaining the sort of physical trappings of the marriage, like, it's kind of, silly to invite the people to come put the tents up when I think that's a major security risk like maybe you don't need the tents because where else are they gonna get the tents they just don't need a tent we'll just conjure them I guess yeah can't you just conjure stuff I don't know maybe only Dumbledore can conjure furniture even in the wizarding world we've got like wedding contractors just need vendors yeah there's vendors 
is hilarious um, to me. Uh, these fucking wedding vendors. Like, what are Bill and Fleur going to do with all these presents? I don't know. It's the what? maintaining... I, you've got... We've received wedding presents. You just put them places. I don't know. There's like a magic waffle iron in there. Weddings are really complicated because they are incredibly important rituals, but they're also... A lot of people view modern weddings as incredibly frivolous. And a lot of the things that Mrs. Weasley is feeling pressure about, sort of aesthetic Dude, and... I think it's a refuge, I think, from all the fucked up shit that's happening. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I it, think it totally makes... I like I like that we have this wedding. I think... I think it's a great... I think it's... We. You have to admit it's a grave security risk. Yeah, but Arthur says he's putting up security charms and stuff but i mean inviting all these people that aren't inner circle to right. the home yeah. where harry potter that the safe house of harry potter is a huge security risk yeah i don't know it's yeah they're even disguising harry for the wedding but everybody knows that harry is like the best friend and sort of surrogate son of this family and they're like oh harry potter's not here like is who's he staying <laughs> with you invited everyone he knows this is our nephew larry Cotter. <laughs> yeah. Look, weddings are lovely and important and also... Our wedding was super nice. Right, but we didn't have it in the middle of a civil war in our community. I am completely for this wedding. That's fine. I guess I mostly am too. I'm a little bit worried about the ways in which it puts them all in a fair amount of danger, which Look, actually, I'm sorry, pans nothing out. Nothing bad is going to happen at this wedding. Yeah, it's going to be totally it. fine and it's <laughs> not at all a security risk. Oh, wait. All of this is so complicated because you just can't do the right thing in these situations. Right. You do what you can and you muddle through and you try to maintain some sense of wellness like communal wellness semblance of normality that's what i like about this part this chapter i think that's what rowling is trying to get across well i think she's yeah but i think she sees it as kind of frivolous you think so maybe not i don't know i i think i'm having a lot of trouble figuring out what i think about a lot of parts of this book is the solution (laughs) and i'm such a hot take queen that that's complicated for me. <laughs> One more thing about the wedding. I do love that a universal angst is in-laws. They turn out nice, though. No, they turn out lovely, but Mrs. Weasley's main sort of point of panic in this truly panic-filled moment is the De La Cours and how clean her house is, which is so eminently rational to me. <laughs> Yeah. I totally understand how she's like, it's war, but also our house is so cluttered and people are coming to stay. I like that the Delacours turn out to be nice. It would have been super boring if they had been mean and stuffy. Also, we don't need that drama in this book. We have enough drama. It's true. And it also sort of underscores the fact that as mean as folks have been before, Fleur is actually really nice. She's like a little haughty sometimes, but she's a good person and she's from good people. Yeah, she fucking puts her ass on the line for Harry Potter. Yeah, (laughs) she does. It's true. So I just think in-law angst is, or like... It's real, man. Bringing a new family into your own family and trying to figure out a whole other family's whole other deal is just hard. Yeah, so Molly's dealing with that on top of, uh, you know, imminent threat of death. 
True. For everyone. Mortal peril. Speaking of imminent threat of death for everyone, should we talk a little bit about Harry's sense of survivor's guilt? Yeah. First of all, Harry is 150% correct that the burrow is the first place that the Death Eaters will look for him and that it is kind of a, I mean, it's a great safe house and that it's one of the key settings in these books, but it's also obviously where he is. So I don't think they're really hiding him. (laughs) Yeah, I feel for Harry. This book's got kind of a Saving Private Ryan vibe, like what's one person worth, you know? Everybody is like risking themselves for Harry. Except that Private Ryan isn't the only person that can kill Hitler. Yeah, so that comparison only gets you so far. (laughs) (laughs) In that case, it would have made total sense to go save Private Ryan, but, uh, you know, yeah. And we get little snippets that everyone truly believes this because uh, when Kingsley is quizzing Arthur about the last thing Dumbledore said to them, he said the answer is uh, Harry's our best hope. Listen to him. Yeah. So no pressure there, Harry. I think Harry is responding accurately to the level of pressure he's under. And I think this is a response that I think I would share. So maybe I'm just relating to Harry really strongly, despite the fact that I think Harry is being, I mean, Harry's always like just a minor amount an idiot. (laughs) I think the fear that you are putting other people in danger. I mean, I really relate to the feeling of being a burden to the people around me. So Harry's survivor's guilt feels very familiar to me and I empathize with it a lot. And I sort of want to be able to tell him like, no, people love you and they really want to care for you and you have to just let them. But I also know that that is probably almost impossible for him to hear. So yeah, I get where he's coming from. Uh, he definitely should have read the room a little better when he volunteers to join like the Mad-Eye movie corpse retrieval party. He's just like, all right, well, you all risk your lives to get me here. Uh, I got to step out. I got some errands. I got to run. <laughs> I'm going to peace out for a yeah. second. Bye. Dude. Yeah. But maybe he just wanted that eyeball. Uh, <laughs> I'm a total cursed child apologist, but the theme of Harry's survivor's guilt is very nicely expanded upon in the play. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. And it is something that's going to follow Harry for the rest of his life. And I think establishing this sort of establishing shot of that experience is, is well done. Yeah. He's got a moral center, man. Uh, especially... His trying to protect Stan Shunpike from himself, which Lupin then berates him for. Yeah, which is another moment where I think Lupin is sort of right and sort of being a dick. Yeah. I, I just think that's that's impressive of Her- for Harry to like stake out that stand. Say, we're not going to do this. Yeah. We, this isn't who we are. We have to stick to our morals. It's interesting to see Harry as essentially a pacifist action hero. He almost never takes any aggre- aggressive action. No, it's attack. true. The one of the few moments where he does like attack someone, uh, Draco goes very badly. He prevails in all of his with Sectumsempra. He prevails in his conflicts with Lord Voldemort through non-aggression. Yeah, primarily. Which is really interesting. Like he doesn't. There are like action set pieces where he is you you know he's using stunning spells and and things like that, but he very rarely initiates them. And he yeah he's not 
it's not a superhero book. No, and he's not a naturally aggressive person, which makes him a really interesting hero because his his stance is of, yeah, I would say almost pacifist defense. Mm-hmm. And he even trains Dumbledore's army at least three quarters of the time, it seems, from the scenes we've seen in defensive spells yeah and i mean to be fair it's also called defense against the dark arts not offense offense against the dark dark arts arts. (laughs) like the whole sort of wizarding stance against dark magic is stave it off yeah the best offense is a good defense but you hear that that's a good old sports cliche i think pacifist hero is yeah i think a good way to describe harry he is he is a pretty naturally non-violent person even the fact that the seeker is the role that he plays on the right team mm-hmm. he's very sort of and i mean this also kind of relates to his sort of loner tendencies it's his, his sort of off doing his own thing and letting the battle ensue kind of below him but what harry is doing is the only thing but that harry's matters. harry's yeah. doing the only thing yeah. that matters quidditch is actually an interesting metaphor for these books i think we've actually raised that point before he is it the seeker is the sort of quintessential harry potter role of like going of off Ho- and doing the main thing the battle of hogwarts is, is kind of he's seeking right while everybody else is bludgering yeah but um one last thought about expelliarmus Yes, that's probably why the Death Eaters decided to go after him as the real Harry. But also, didn't they notice that he is the only Harry Potter without a stuffed fucking owl in a cage? <laughs> like, everyone else just flying around with stuffed animals? How realistic are these stuffed owls? I completely forgot to mention that last episode. Yeah. Everyone has a plush owl. I wonder where they bought them. Do you think they're from Weasley's Wizard Wheezes? I mean, maybe. Do they deal in plush toys? I don't uh, know. Super hyper-realistic like, ones? Are these just like T.Y.? Are these just like Thai owl beanie babies? Or what are we <laughs> What are we talking about here? So the, yeah, they're flying away. The Death Eaters like, oh, everyone has stuffed owls. Except that except one. Except the one clearly real dead owl. <laughs> uh, although it does say that she looked like a stuffed toy. Stuffed might mean, like, taxidermy. Were these taxidermy owls? I don't know. That's fucked up, too. <laughs> Dude, wizards would be in the taxidermy. That seems very true. 1,000%. Uh, there's probably a pretty fucked up taxidermy shop on Nocturne Alley. Yeah, that's probably you, true. You know it. It's like taxidermied, like, Grindylows and shit. Mm-hmm. Like, dark creatures. <laughs> stuffed. Terrifying. Speaking of terrifying, we learn more about the metaphysics of horcruxes first though quick quibble might turn into a long quibble actually and once we get hold of it how do you destroy a horcrux asked ron well said hermione i've been researching that how asked harry i didn't think there were any books on horcruxes in the library there weren't said Hermione, who had turned pink. Dumbledore removed them all, but he... he didn't destroy them. Ron sat up straight, wide-eyed. How in the name of Merlin's pants have you managed to get your hands on those Horcrux books? It... it wasn't sealing, said Hermione, looking from Harry to Ron with a kind of desperation. They were still library books, even if Dumbledore had taken them off the shelves. 
Anyway, if he really didn't want anyone to get at them, I'm sure he would have made it much harder to... Get to the point, said Ron. Well, it was easy, said Hermione in a small voice. I just did a summoning charm, you know, Asio, and they zoomed out of Dumbledore's study window right into the girls' dormitory. Hermione comes by these very important Horcrux texts by just waving her wand at Dumbledore's window and saying, I she, she uses Osseo, but what does she say? Does she say, like, Osseo Horcrux books, Osseo thing I need? Like, what? I didn't know that Osseo could be that, like, simple. Vague? Yeah. I, uh, I have a lot of questions about this. Doesn't it seem like this would be a great way for, like, Munduncus to just commit hella robberies. Yeah, you would just say Osseo money. Osseo uh, all of the valuables in the home. I mean, I didn't know you could just do it like that. I thought you kind of needed to have some kind of claim of ownership or connection with an object. Like right. when Harry uh, when Harry summons his broom in Goblet of Fire. Or at least be able to visualize the thing. Yeah. Like, because otherwise... Her- how do you summon something you don't even know if it exists? Her- Hermione doesn't know. She just guesses that there's fucking... Horcrux books in Dumbledore's office. Yeah. It says Osseo, yeah, Osseo banned books. Uh, what? This is also, it is one of those moments where the use of a spell kind of breaks the whole wizarding world. Because it's like, you would just do this constantly if that were possible. I mean, in order to protect your possessions, wouldn't you have to put like anti-summoning charms on pretty much everything you owned? Yeah. Otherwise someone could just, yeah, walk by your fucking house and say like, Osseo television. Uh, (laughs) They wouldn't want it, they wouldn't know what the fuck to do with the television. Although weirdly, they understand how radios work, but that... We will get into later in this book. Oh, yeah. There's a Uh, hell of a lot of like ham radio operations (laughs) later on in this book. I forgot about that. Yeah. So uh, also what this raises questions to me about you're using magic. You're tapping into some kind of force or power in the world. It's not the force, but you know what I mean? What kind of metaphysical laws adjudicate? Whether you can summon something. Frankly, in J.K. Rowling's world building, zero. I know. That's one of the biggest problems with how magic functions in these books is is, the rules just constantly seem to get broken. Like what, when Hermione says Osseo Horcrux books, what power interprets what she says and then adjudicates it so that it allows these books to like fly out of Dumbledore's office? Is there some kind of like intelligence yeah, I mean, that's the question about the basic functioning of magic that yeah. comes up over and over. Is there, like, over. wizard god who, like, Decides. is able to discern this? I, I don't, I don't know. Like, what determines the rules? I don't think it's a spiritual thing. No, I don't think so either, but it, it's very It has strange. to be sort of a universal sort of reverberating intelligence force thing. I mean... Yeah, but, what is magic? Right, I, what, I mean, what is magic is a truly wild question but, to be asking in the seventh book but of this, the Harry but Potter this series. this particular moment really raises, re-raises those questions for me. Yeah, I totally so, agree with you, because it's sort of nonsense. Couldn't they just walk? I mean, and he says Osseo Horcrux And it doesn't cave, work. And it kind of works, like, something splashes. Yeah, it doesn't work, because presumably Voldemort's, entra- like, enchanted it. But I guess they could walk around going like, Osseo Horcrux, Osseo Horcrux. How far away does something have to be? I, I don't know. It seems like they should have learned these things in school. Yeah, this is something that it seems like a classic 
lesson in a classroom. Yeah. I that, mean, we cover this in year four, right? right? We learned Osseo from Flitwick, and Flitwick never really explains. It doesn't seem like what exactly you can and can't summon and, and the reasons, how. Yeah, the reasons for it. Well, because like, they what's learn the virtually no here? theory. Yeah, yeah. They, they just learn application without any theory. Flitwick's like, I don't know if you need something, just say Osseo. And the one time, I mean, this isn't a great point to make, because it's fucking umbrage. But the one teacher that tries to teach them some theory is like <laughs> roundly ridiculed. But like having a textbook about like how magic works, sort of like you said, metaphysically, would be super duper helpful. And even Hermione doesn't seem to know the answer to that. Yeah, I just, I don't understand what determines what can be summoned and what cannot. I completely agree. The other thing that this book underscores is that sometimes banned books are a good idea <laughs> what the that is fuck a hot take. was this text i mean you know not sort of universally banned but what was this text doing in a high school library yeah you can't have banned books week at hogwarts because everyone will just become dark wizards <laughs> yeah this is like this would be like if you had the anarchist cookbook like just at, your at school like library, north high school at the scholastic <laughs> book fair or whatever you know you can buy like dark web like pressure cooker bomb instruction manuals or whatever in the library of like (laughs) an elementary and middle school i mean that's why there is the restricted section although it seems pretty fucking easy to get into the restricted section all you have to do is put on an invisibility cloak or you just say osseo banned book and i guess it comes to you boom uh simple although i guess you have to deal with fucking madam pence but whatever uh, who's mean but ineffective i mean it makes sense that hogwarts has texts like this that are kind of off limits to the general reading population because as far as we know there aren't any other institutions of higher learning in the wizarding world so you know you want a scholarly library although do- it doesn't actually seem like visiting scholars come to hogwarts to use the library presumably they do Presumably they do, but we haven't seen that in action. I don't know. It doesn't seem like any grown-ups ever check out these books. Yeah. Like, besides, I guess, Dumbledore is occasionally perusing a volume. We're just hoarding the dark books in his library, in his uh, fucking office. So what, I forget. Does it say that he took them out of the library after Tom Riddle had, like, found well, them? That's the thing. They don't know. They're okay. like, oh, if he took them after he became headmaster, then this is obviously where Tom Riddle learns to make horcruxes. <laughs> at the library. He's just, like, doing research, and he's like, oh, this is how you split your soul. Right. I mean, if you can figure out, if you can get a pass to the restricted section. Which Horace Slughorn would immediately have given him. Yeah. Or Snape. Oh, I guess Snape isn't. Not Snape, yeah. Sorry. How the fuck old is Horace Slughorn now that I think about it? We can't go down that road. He's pretty he's but pretty old. Very fucking old. Yeah. You know, he's well, he's at least as old as Dumbledore. Yeah, but Dumbledore is like the oldest. Yeah. Oh yeah, because Dumbledore had the Dumbledore had the, the Sorcerer's Stone. What the How fuck? old is Slughorn? I, wow. This book is gonna be full of us going back to past plot points and being like Hang on a minute. Well, that's what this whole book is about. Yeah, Revisiting exactly. past plot points. It's just saying, hang on a and minute. And being like, actually, Basilisk Fangs are the most important object Really in the important universe. object in the yeah. world. Yeah. Remember this throwaway moment? Actually, it wasn't a throwaway moment, but yeah. I mean, the Basilisk Fang was a very important moment, but yeah, he should have collected a few of those, it turns out. <laughs> well, they do. Later. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. They get that fucking RPG item pickup. <laughs> so, speaking of splitting your soul, what the fuck is a soul? I don't know how long Potter? we can spend here, uh, but... Yeah, I wish I knew... This bears further study, the kind of, like, history of the philosophy of what makes up a soul. Clearly, in the wizarding world, it's something separate from your body that resides within the body. But that lasts past the sort of expiration of the body. Right. Which means they believe in some kind of non-ghost afterlife that right. your soul exists in after your body has died. Mm-hmm. Do souls live in paintings? We've asked that question before. Right. So, I mean... I mean, souls can live in objects. Maybe those paintings actually are the manifestations of the souls of dead... I think they're just... I think, headmasters. I think we've decided they're just... No, they're just... It's just AI. It's I know, wizard, but... They're wizard chatbots. Where do souls go? Uh, we don't know. And we don't know where wizards think souls go. Exactly. We know that they go beyond... They go into the... They go off into something. Do we know J.K. Rowling's sort of spiritual background? No. I wonder what she thinks a soul is because it is sort of, it's clearly kind of connected to some kind of spiritual practice, but also really unclear. I don't know. This is a murky. I would describe these books as spiritual, not religious. <laughs> and that's very much how she handles the, the soul here. So she definitely believes that the soul, that it can be corrupted Right, and then and it that bad things can happen to it matters based on your past behavior, the and that it matters, yeah, past the existence of uh, the body. Yeah, her conception that the soul is basically the soul that lives in the body is indestructible is interesting, but in order to buy more time on Earth, you have to trade like more physical time on Earth. You have to trade the integrity of your soul by splitting it and storing it somewhere, and then. By binding your soul more closely to Earth, it can be destroyed. We think of the soul as something indestructible. Right, but, but Voldemort makes his make. Voldemort makes his body indestructible by making his much more important soul eminently destructible. Right. Which is very elegant, actually, and a really good representation of the kind of evil that Voldemort is. Yes. Another moment that I think is really elegant is learning that the sort of cure for making a horcrux or the way that you re-establish a wholeness of soul is with remorse this is one of those moments when the way that she conceives of magic is quite beautiful yeah i like this magic um the idea that well because she is really tapped into the ideas of sort of the magic of incredibly strong emotion or sort of a moral magic Mm -hmm. which we've seen and liked before so this is also perfect because remorse is the one thing Voldemort is never going to feel. So Voldemort is, I think, very literally incapable of kind of correcting these horcrux like abominations because I think one of the emotions Voldemort is incapable of ever experiencing is remorse. Yeah, because he's, uh, is he a sociopath? I, beyond many, that, yeah, I Among think, many things. But, I, I don't know the exact, what diagnosis you'd put on him. But yeah, he's definitely... He's definitely incapable of remorse. And Harry, Ron, and Hermione don't even discuss that as a possible option. They're not like, how can we make Voldemort feel really bad about this? Right. Maybe he just needs an intervention. There's there's no, he's, he's incapable of it. And it is, I mean, his inability to literally put his own soul back together is ultimately like his great weakness. And Dumbledore underscores that at various points 
Voldemort's inability to feel for other people or understand other people feeling for each other is kind of his chief weakness. He doesn't get love and he doesn't get forgiveness and he doesn't get remorse and he just, he doesn't have access to all these things that strengthen magic in this world. And I think in some ways, yeah, that literally, it literally weakens him in some ways because, yeah, he's not operating with a whole self no he isn't he's operating at really low magical capacity in some really important ways he's the most powerful wizard in the world in some ways but he's also incredibly depleted in some of the things that makes magic work really well because he's got a fucking chunk of his life force inside of a fucking diadem somewhere yeah just you know hidden in an attic yeah so Yeah, I just, I'm really excited to continue to explore the Horcrux kind of soul thing because, I don't know, it's it's interestingly done. It's a, the way that she, I mean, we just said like a lot of the things that she does with magic are sort of inscrutable, but her connection between magic and deep feeling or deep moral righteousness is, uh, is well done. So final thing to talk about here. Uh, it's kind of a big one, so wow, this episode is long, you all. Sorry. Maybe that's fun for you. I don't know. It's it's a chonky one, as Alex <laughs> would say. Is these enormous sacrifices that Ron and Hermione are willing and set up to make in order to follow Harry on this journey. I like that we get a bit more of a glimpse into Hermione's home life, which we've discussed before. We don't really know much about and we speculated on her closeness with her parents but obviously she's told them a lot about harry potter so you know that implies some intimacy that's a pretty big thing to yeah invent like you know those are that's a pretty big thing to discuss with your parents especially you know issues around harry potter or fraught i think this sort of first of all this is the first time we have any real emotional resonance yes, with yeah. hermione's family life And it's very poignant and what she, the decision she makes is enormous and really sad in a lot of ways. It's actually one of the saddest scenes in the movie Mm -hmm. and um, which I actually think it's a really well done scene in the movie. But clearly Hermione's parents really trust her judgment. Yeah. Because she seems to have told them kind of the whole deal Because she's really afraid that they're going to be able to torture, that the Death Eaters would be able to torture, like, real information out of them. Mm -hmm. Which means she's been like, look, this is the deal in my life. And they're like, chill, you seem to have things in hand. Like, (laughs) definitely go back to this school. And I don't think that means they're bad parents. I just think they raised Hermione right. They raised this incredibly, she has really high Mm self-efficacy. And, I don't know, they did a pretty good job with her. I think Hermione's parents get very little credit for being fairly successful at parenting this child it seems yeah i don't know if i have much to add to that it's good that she can remove the charm and restore their memories that's true it's nice to know that this is reversible yes that is good she's quite sad about it and then ron has this utterly cockamamie ghoul plan (laughs) which is actually a really good comic moment i think the ghoul in pajamas is 
truly a hysterical scene. And when Ron is like, yeah, he seems pretty psyched. He's going to get to <laughs> sleep in a bed. <laughs> it's just kind of nice. What the fuck is a ghoul? It's yeah. just this grody upstairs roommate that they have, I yeah. guess. They he can't seems talk. tied to the house in some way. Yeah, I think he belongs to the, the house. Yeah, which is, that's neat. And I just, I really like the image. I think they, you know, they transfigure him so he has like red hair and pustules. It is a very Weasley plan. It is a very is Weasley, so Weasley plan. And they it's... all, all the Weasleys like, with the exception of Molly, like get on board with it. And they, they all work together to make this ghoul look like a real sick and fucked up Ron. <laughs> it's very funny to me. I also, I don't super understand why they had to put him in pajamas this early. I guess to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. But yeah, I mean, it's a good thing they like did. He's just like hanging out in PJs. <laughs> it's, uh, they're probably real dirty. Oh, yeah. But, they were probably dirty before. Yeah, that's true. Ron is kind of smudged always. You know. Okay, who is your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Ted Chonk Tonks because... I mean, he's got some real fucking medical skills. Is this guy a healer? Like, Harry has a fucking motorcycle crash outside of his house, and he just he regrows a tooth, he fixes some broken ribs. Tonks, like, he gets it done. Yeah, he really does. Mine is the ghoul. Just, I love this plan. Uh, I'm excited to be a part of it. He's an absolute ghoul. <laughs> That's all. This week's... Episode is brought to you by Millamont's Magic Marquees. Good for all your enchanted wedding needs. Make your magical moment even more magical. <laughs> the audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's wonderful performance of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. You can find us on various platforms. Apple Podcasts. We're now on Spotify, which is very exciting. Um, you know, all the other places. Please subscribe wherever you choose and rate and review us if it's a spot where that's an option. We also have a newsletter, tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. That's where you can go and subscribe. And it's coming out at a fairly regular clip these days. And uh, it's got owl news, so. Yes, plenty of owl news. Uh so I keep <laughs> curating commentary as uh, part of my job for work. So uh, I've applied that to the Quibbler podcast by looking for the best owl news. And I would tell you that I'll tell you how here's how owl news in the world breaks down like real world owl news. A lot of it is firefighters and various first responders rescuing owls who have become trapped in things. It's a lot of <laughs> owls getting stuck in soccer nets Sometimes fences. Uh, wow, we've just really fucked with the natural world in basically yeah. every conceivable owl, way. Yeah. I, they, I've read multiple stories about owls getting like caught in soccer nets. Oh my god, which sucks. Uh, also, if you're searching for owl news, you'll find just a lot of local sports teams named the Owls. So it'll be like Lady Owls lacrosse team won. I don't know what a good a normal lacrosse score is. Uh, is it like Quidditch? 150 to, <laughs> to, 500. to, to 35 or whatever. Uh, I, I don't know how lacrosse works. Um, that's the uh, that's the owl news. Or just various zookeeper type or ornithology. Like, 
local conservation group events, and the local newspapers are always like, the local Audubon wants you to give a hoot about owls. Yeah, Every, there's a lot of, lot of owl puns. it's a hoot yeah, type it's a hoot. content. We don't know any other owl words. <laughs> Who's the owl? No, yeah, something like that. Um, you can also find us on social media, if you so choose, at Quipper Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. That's always fun. Next time, once again, just as a reminder, we are going for bi-weekly this session. Both of us have some new shit going on at work, so we're doing our best, um, and we're shooting for bi-weekly. Sometimes it'll be more often, and sometimes it'll be less, so it's always going to be a surprise, I think, is the message, and, you know, we're sorry about that, but also, this is free, and we don't have ads, so, um... We're on wizard time. We're on wizard time. There you go. Next time, we will be reading The Will of Albus Dumbledore and The Wedding, so we'll talk to you then. Thanks, amigos! For the first time, Harry imagined Mad-Eye's body, broken as Dumbledore's had been, yet with that one eye still whizzing in its socket. He felt a stab of revulsion mixed with a bizarre desire to laugh. There's one more thing we need to complete the plan. That guy's eye. No, no we don't. No, we don't need that guy's eye. No, seriously, I need it. It's important to me. It happened just after we broke out of the circle. Mad-Eye and Dung were close by us. They were heading north, too. Voldemort, he can fly, went straight for them. Dung panicked. I heard him cry out. Mad-Eye tried to stop him, but he disapparated. Voldemort's curse hit Mad-Eye full in the face. He fell backward off his broom and... It's Bunyan. There were no survivors. <laughs>